Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. With over 280,000 estimated new cases in 2021, breast cancer remains the most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. And the treatment landscape for patients diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer has dramatically changed the last few years. Therapy has mostly changed to oral chemotherapy, which places greater emphasis on nurses and pharmacists for care management. During today's podcast, Dr. Caitlin Bailey, an oncology pharmacist at Mayo Clinic Health System in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, reviews evidence, toxicity management, and future direction for targeted oral chemotherapy in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Today, we are going to be describing the mechanism, reviewing outcomes data, and as well as discussing toxicity management for CDK4-6, PI3K, and PARP inhibitors. These are some abbreviations that I have used throughout my slides. And I'd like to get started with a very brief background or some background information regarding breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most common type of cancer diagnosed in the United States today. And roughly 13% of all women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer at some point within their lifetime. And the median age of diagnosis is currently 63. Some risk factors or factors that can increase one's risk um, of getting breast cancer include genetic mutations such as BRCA1 and 2, family history, age, increased BMI. This can be particularly important for patients who are postmenopausal, alcohol consumption, as well as endogenous estrogen exposure. And examples of this include patients who have an early um, age at first menses and also patients who have a later age at menopause. And then lastly, there are some factors that have been found to decrease one's risk for breast cancer. And that does include regular exercise as well as breastfeeding. So when a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, Two very important ways in which this is identified include hormone receptor status, as well as HER2 receptor positivity. And when you break that down into four common subtypes of breast cancer, the most common by far is hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. And this represents roughly two-thirds of the entire breast cancer population. And that actually is the population for which we are going to spend the most time and focus on today. Another way to describe breast cancer, and one that many of you are probably even more familiar with, is by stage. So patients who are diagnosed with early breast cancer, these patients are often candidates for localized therapies such as surgery and radiation. And then for patients who are diagnosed with advanced or metastatic breast cancer, these patients are typically only candidates 
for systemic therapy. So our population of focus for the beginning of our presentation today is going to be predominantly on hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer. And the treatment paradigm for these patients predominantly um, begins with hormone therapy. This can include targeted therapy. And then last, um, it can include chemotherapy. And the reason why chemotherapy is included last is because we know that this population typically doesn't respond as well to chemotherapy. We currently have agents for the following breast cancer targets. This includes HER2, CDK4-6, PI3K, mTOR, as well as BRCA. And the reason why this is so important is because patients, um, is because we can combine targeted therapy with endocrine or hormone therapy to hopefully um, help patients overcome resistance um, to endocrine therapy. And the goal is also to prolong um, the amount of time that they can remain on each line of hormonal or endocrine therapies. Historically, targeted therapy used in combination with endocrine therapy began in 2012 when Everolimus was approved. More recently, the CDK4-6 inhibitors have become available on the market. PARP inhibitors um, are now used. And then lastly, Alpelisib. This is a PI3K inhibitor. This is another agent that is combined with endocrine therapies. Both, or CDK4-6, is represented in both the first and second line therapy. And then Alpelisib, our PI3K inhibitor, this is represented in the second line therapy options um, and is recommended by NCCN for patients of our specific population of focus. So the hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer. So now we're gonna take a deeper dive into CDK4-6. The growth of hormone receptor positive breast cancer depends on activation of cyclin D1. This activates CDK4-6, which downstream leads to phosphorylation of retinoblastoma proteins, which results in the G1 through S phase transition and entry into the cell cycle. We also know that cell line models of endocrine resistance also remain dependent on activation of cyclin D1 and CDK4-6. So essentially, we can use these agents to prolong and prevent patients from becoming resistant to endocrine therapy. There are currently three CDK4-6 agents on the market today, and that includes palbociclib, ribociclib, as well as abemaciclib. As mentioned previously, all three of these agents are recommended in combination with endocrine therapy in both the first and second line setting for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced or metastatic breast cancer. And these are category one recommendations. Abemaciclib, in contrast, this is recommended for patients who have failed both endocrine and chemotherapies. And this is not a category one recommendation when used alone. Taking a deeper look at the trials in which these 
agents gained their indications or approvals. Um, first, I'd like to orient you to the chart. So all of the trials in this chart include, unless stated otherwise, phase three trials in which the population was hurt, sorry, hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced, or um, metastatic breast cancer, all of which were post-menopausal patients. And this was used in the first line setting. The first trial we're going to discuss is Paloma 1. This is a phase two open label study in which palbociclib was given in combination with letrozole compared to letrozole alone. Improvement in progression-free survival was demonstrated in this study. And you can see here, um, it nearly doubled. Although um, benefit with overall survival was not found to be statistically significant. In the next three studies, Paloma 2, Mona Lisa 2, and then Monarch 3, each of these three agents were studied in combination with an aromatase inhibitor. Um, all three of these studies did demonstrate benefit with the addition of a CDK4-6 inhibitor in terms of progression-free survival. And all three actually have overall survival um, data that is still maturing. Mona Lisa 7, this study included patients who were pre- or perimenopausal, as in contrast to all the other studies, included post-menopausal patients. Ribociclib was studied in combination with the appropriate endocrine therapy for this population. So patients were given either tamoxifen or an aromatase inhibitor with ovarian suppression. This study did demonstrate both progression-free as well as benefit um, in overall survival. Although ribociclib is not currently recommended to be used in combination with tamoxifen because this can result in increased QTC prolongation and increased risk. And then the last study on this chart, Mona Lisa 3, this included postmenopausal patients. Um, ribociclib was studied in combination with fulvestrant in both the first line and second line settings. Progression-free survival benefit was found in both settings. Um, and then the entire, the entire study population also demonstrated overall survival benefit as well. Monarch 2 and Paloma 3, both of these studies included both pre- and post-menopausal patients um, in the second-line setting, so who had failed prior endocrine therapy. Abemaciclib and palbociclib were given in combination with fulvestrant. And you can see um, the survival or the, the progression-free survival data does differ here. And one of the major reasons why is because of the population. This definitely differed between these two studies. In the Monarch, uh, Monarch 2 study, the population included um, patients who had failed one prior line of endocrine therapy and no prior um, exposure to any chemotherapy. Whereas in the Paloma 3 study, more than half of these patients had been exposed to two or more lines of endocrine therapy, and then one-third of the population had also been exposed to prior chemotherapy. So the patients in the Paloma 3 study were more treatment resistant. 
both of these studies did demonstrate improvement in progression-free survival for patients who were given the CDK4-6 inhibitor, although overall survival benefit was only demonstrated in the Monarch 2 study with abemaciclib. Overall survival benefit, again, this has only been demonstrated in the first line setting with ribociclib thus far. Remember, there are there is this phase three study for each of the agents with overall survival data that is still maturing. So more information hopefully will be published soon. In the second line setting, ribociclib as well as abemaciclib have are the only two um, of the CDK4-6 inhibitors to demonstrate benefit in overall survival. But remember, Paloma-3 did have a much more treatment-resistant population included. When we compare these three agents even further, palbociclib and ribociclib, both of these agents are known to have more CDK4 activity, whereas abemaciclib is known to have more CDK6 activity and is thought to be more potent than the other two agents. Palbociclib and ribociclib, the dosing regimen for these agents, um, it is given once daily, and this is for three weeks on and then one week off, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Whereas abemaciclib, and, it, and it's like that for each cycle, abemaciclib in contrast is given twice a day continuously throughout each cycle. And then all three agents do require some intensive laboratory monitoring. So um, labs should be checked every two weeks for the first two months and then monthly thereafter and as needed. Ribociclib also requires an ECG at baseline and then every two weeks for the first cycle as well. Palbociclib and ribociclib, the most common side effect for these agents includes neutropenia. And it's actually a very unique neutropenia. And this is why these are given for three weeks on and then one week off. That week of a break is actually enough time, typically for most patients, um, for their ANC to rebound, maybe not completely, um, but it is extremely quick. And because of that, these patients are not great candidates for growth factor support. Abemaciclib, in contrast, the most common side effect for this agent is diarrhea. And the median onset is typically or approximately um, the first six days after treatment initiation. And this can be managed with oral antidiarrheals such as lopiramide. Less commonly, ribociclib can increase risk or has demonstrated um, increased QTC prolongation. This is more rare, but for 10 patients in the Mona Lisa 2 study, um, all of these patients had an increased interval of more than 60 milliseconds. So it was quite significant. And then in 2019, after post-marketing data had been reported, all three agents did gain a black box warning for interstitial lung disease or pneumonitis. This is rare, but it can be fatal. So it is important to monitor pulmonary function for patients utilizing these three agents. So we talked about how much they differ. These are some things to keep in mind when providers are um, selecting the appropriate agent for each patient. So keeping in mind baseline counts, diarrhea um, at baseline, 
A pharmacist can be helpful reviewing a home medication list and looking for other agents that can potentially increase the QTC interval as well. Palocyclib used to have um, a drug interaction with PPIs. This was seen with the capsule formulation. And in order to mitigate that interaction, it was recommended that the capsules for palbociclib be taken with food. Although the capsule formulation has recently been phased out of the market. Um, so currently the tablets are um, more available so that drug interaction um, may not be as relevant anymore. And then the dosing regimen also does differ significantly. That's something to keep in mind as well. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was that abemaciclib did demonstrate benefit in patients who had liver metastases, whereas these subgroups were not studied specifically with the other two agents. So there are trials in which these agents have been used in the early breast cancer setting. So as adjuvant therapy for patients who are at high risk of breast cancer recurrence. These three studies are listed here and they included both abemaciclib as well as palbociclib. Although only the Monarch E study did demonstrate benefit with um, abemaciclib in um, invasive disease-free survival when used in comparison to endocrine therapy alone. And abemaciclib was studied here for two years um, as adjuvant therapy. Additional, there, there is not much data currently using a CDK4-6 inhibitor um, in an additional line of therapy, so using a differing agent. So hopefully more data will be published here as well. Abemaciclib is known to cross the blood-brain barrier. So there currently are active trials assessing the use in, the pati in patients um, with brain metastases. More information to come there. And then um, there also are other trials, various trials currently assessing the use for these agents within different um, disease states for cancer patients as well. CDK4-6 inhibitors do represent a new standard of care um, for patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, metastatic or advanced breast cancer. There currently is no direct comparative data between the three agents and the toxicity profiles do differ quite a bit. So this offers a lot of opportunity for pharmacists to really become engaged, not only helping providers select the appropriate agent, but also with toxicity management of these agents as well. Um, and now that we've discussed these in depth, I'd like to start our first um, poll question. As a reminder, you can respond to this um, by going to poll ev.com slash MayoRx, or you can text MayoRx to 22333 in order to respond. And the question today, um, which of the following best describes the mechanism of action of a CDK4-6 inhibitor used for the treatment of breast cancer? So our first option, A, inhibiting the PI3K pathway of cell proliferation, B, inhibiting cell cycle progression by preventing G1 through S phase transition, C, 
causing double-stranded DNA breaks that cannot be accurately repaired, or D, inhibiting the conversion from androgen to estrogen. And I'll give you a couple more seconds here. Thank you so much for everyone who is responding. And now we're gonna move on. Um, yes, the correct answer is B, inhibits cell cycle progression by preventing G1 through S phase transition. This is the correct mechanism for PARP inhibitors. A is the mechanism for PI3K inhibitors. C is the mechanism for PARP inhibitors. And then D is the mechanism for aromatase inhibitors. Moving on, the next thing we're going to discuss is alpelisib. This is the only PI3K inhibitor that's currently approved within the breast cancer setting. There are many PI3K inhibitors on the market, but this is the only one used for breast cancer, and it also is alpha-specific. This blocks the PI3K AKT mTOR pathway, which does lead to protein synthesis as well as cell proliferation. And this agent was studied in the SOLAR-1 trial. This was a phase three double-blinded randomized study that included patients who had failed prior endocrine therapy. So it was used in the second line setting for hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. And the population was divided into groups based upon PIK3CA gene mutation status. And patients in each group were randomly assigned to either receive the study drug of alpelisib in combination with fulvestrant or placebo um, with fulvestrant. The results of this study did demonstrate improvement in progression-free survival. That was statistically significant, but only for patients with the PIK3CA gene mutation. And as you can see here, progression-free survival nearly doubled. When we look at subtypes that demonstrated benefit, it did include those patients with the PIK3CA gene mutation. It also included, um, they did a subgroup analysis of patients who had been exposed to prior chemotherapy in either the neo or the adjuvant setting. And these patients demonstrated benefit as well. And then in the SOLAR1 trial, there was a very small subgroup of patients who had been exposed to a prior CDK4-6 inhibitor. This represented 20 patients, which was um, less than 6% of the entire population. So a very small group and benefit um, in that small group was not found with prior exposure. Although since the solar one uh, um, trial was published, there have been two studies published um, reporting otherwise. So the first is the BELIEVE trial. This is a phase three trial. And then the second was a French retrospective analysis both of which did suggest um, that patients with previous exposure to a CDK4-6 inhibitor also did derive, derive benefit in terms of progression-free survival. So that is promising. The most common side effect for this agent is hyperglycemia. The second most common side effect is diarrhea and then it also can cause a rash that can be quite significant and affect uh, much of the skin on the body. 
This medication is dosed at 300 milligrams given once a day in combination with fulvestrant, which is an inject, um, injection that's given once a month. There is no real guidance here, but typically in practice, alpelacib is initiated in combination with an oral antihistamine, and this is given to prevent the rash that can be quite significant. So hopefully more information will be coming out um, regarding that soon. And then metformin is recommended to be used to help manage the hyperglycemia that can um, be quite significant. And the onset is roughly within the first one or two weeks. Um, it's quite acute. So beginning management with metformin, pioglitazone can be added as needed, as well as the DPP-4 agents. And one of the authors of the Solar One trial also um, made a statement, and this has been done in practice as well, where patients are initiated on metformin prior to alpelacib because the hyperglycemia can be quite severe and cause dose reductions. Fasting plasma glucose is checked. Um, it's once weekly for the first two weeks after initiation, and then once monthly thereafter. And A1C is also recommended to be checked every three months. And for patients who have a fasting that results greater than 250, it is recommended to hold alpelacib. Um, and if this doesn't recover within the first three to five days to consult endocrinology and then discontinue the agent permanently if this doesn't recover to grade one within the first three weeks of therapy initiation. There are currently several trials um, looking to use this agent within different populations of breast cancer. So this includes patients who are triple negative and also um, using this agent combination with HER2 directed therapy as well. So now we're going to move on to a case. DD is a 64-year-old female. She did present with both abdominal and hip pain. She was later diagnosed by an oncologist with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer that had metastasized to her bones. She then, or then initiated therapy with letrozole and palbociclib. And 29 months later, she did develop progression um, again to the bones. Her oncologist completed next generation sequencing of her tumor, which did demonstrate a PIK3CA gene mutation. Based on the case information, which of the following agents is the most appropriate for DD? The first option A is a bemaciclib with letrozole, B, a tezolizumab with fulvestrant, C, anastrozole with fulvestrant, and then D, alpelacib with fulvestrant. And everyone thus far is correct. The answer is D, alpelacib plus plus fulvestrant. Um, and this is based on the outcomes data that we just reviewed from the Solar One trial. So because DD decided to initiate therapy with alpelacib and fulvestrant, which of the following agents will she most likely use 
for toxicity management? This is a, another question. The answer choices here include A, loratadine to manage rash, as well as metformin for blood glucose management, B, to manage diarrhea, or lopiramide to manage diarrhea, and adapalene to manage acne, C, loratadine to manage the rash, and C, for filgrastum, a growth factor for neutropenia support, or D, metformin to manage the blood sugars, and then urea cream to manage hand-foot syndrome. And everyone is correct again, 100% on all three questions. Great job, everyone. Thank you for your participation. The correct answer here is A, loratadine. This is an oral antihistamine. Um, in practice, it has been started with the initiation of Elpelisib to help manage the rash. And then metformin is also extremely commonly used to manage the hyperglycemia, which you saw occurs in 99% of patients given this agent. The last drug class that we're going to review today are the PARP inhibitors. And now we actually are going to change our focus a little bit from um, strictly the hormone receptor positive population to only um, patients who have metastatic or recurrent breast cancer who are HER2 negative. So it is recommended by NCCN to test all patients with recurrent or metastatic breast cancer for germline BRCA1 or 2 mutations in order to identify candidates for PARP inhibitors. PARP enzymes are involved in DNA transcription, cell cycle regulation, as well as DNA repair. BRCA, this is a tumor suppressor gene which prevents cells from growing and dividing too rapidly in an uncontrolled way. So both PARP and BRCA are both mechanisms for um, DNA repair, damage for which can occur with patients who've been exposed to prior chemo or patients who have cells that are growing and dividing rapidly, such as cancer cells. So in the absence of a functioning BRCA gene, PARP is sufficient um, to repair damaged DNA. And in the absence of PARP enzymes, BRCA, as you can see in the bottom left, is also sufficient typically um, for repairing damaged DNA. But in the absence of both active PARP enzymes as well as a functioning BRCA gene, double-stranded breaks in DNA occur that cannot accurately be repaired, and this leads to cell death. There are currently two PARP inhibitors that are approved for the use in breast cancer. The first one is Olaparib. This was studied in the Olympiad trial. This was a phase three open label study um, that included patients who have a germline BRCA mutation who are HER2 negative. And these patients had progressed on no more than two prior lines of chemotherapy. They were given either Olaparib or um, standard of care single agent chemo. In this study, Olaparib did demonstrate benefit um, in progression-free survival, although overall survival benefit was not found to be statistically significant.
Talazoprib was also studied. This is the other PARP inhibitor approved within the breast cancer setting. This was studied in the Embraca trial, similar to Olympiad. This was a phase three open label study. It included patients with the BRCA mutation that are HER2 negative who had progressed on no more than three prior lines of chemotherapy. Talazoprib was compared to standard of care chemotherapy again, which was single agent chemo. Again, progression-free survival benefit was demonstrated in the study group, and overall survival benefit was not found to be statistically significant. When we look at this, um, the outcomes data side-by-side side for both of these studies, one thing I did want to point out here, in the Embraca study, the rate of grade three or four toxicity here was greater than the rate of toxicity in the standard of care arm. And this is in contrast to the Olympiad study in which a greater or a higher rate of grade three and four toxicity was found um, with the use of single agent chemo compared to Olaparib. The most common side effects for both olaparib and talazoparib in these studies included anemia. GI toxicity is also fairly common with the use of PARP inhibitors, and this typically occurs within the first few weeks of therapy. Taking a PARP inhibitor with food or immediately prior to bedtime may help decrease or eliminate some of these side effects. And then it is important to monitor patients with severe hematolog hematologic um, toxicity and further evaluation is warranted if this doesn't resolve within the first four or within four weeks. Um, because these agents, they do increase the risk for secondary malignancies such as myelodysplastic syndrome or AML. And this is likely related to the fact that they do inhibit DNA repair mechanisms. And then Olaparib also has a warning for pneumonitis or interstitial lung disease. So it is important to monitor patients on Olaparib, um, monitor their pulmonary function as well. So as many of you probably know, PARP inhibitors are widely used within various different types of cancer, although only approved for metastatic or recurrent um, breast cancer that's HER2 negative. I do believe that there will be approval very soon for PARP inhibitors, particularly within the use um, in the adjuvant and neoadjuvant setting. Um, there is promising data um, from the Neotala study. This was presented recently at ASCO for the neoadjuvant use of talazoparib prior to surgery. And then um, there are many other studies within other um, settings as well. This can include with HER2 targeted agents, as well as in combination with immunotherapy also. Thank you all so much for joining me today. I hope that you were able to take something away from this. There are several oral targeted chemotherapy agents approved for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer currently. And this just 
um, opens up so many doors and opportunities for pharmacists to really engage within the oncology care team. And this includes engagement with patients, but also with providers as well. Um, so selecting the appropriate agents for each patient, and then also education and managing the toxicities caused by these agents. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.